Welcome to this first episode of Due Process Don'ts, UC Berkeley's podcast centered on issues of legal activism and policy reform. Each episode, we will be exploring new ways that modern activist movements can advance their causes through legal and other channels. I'm your host, Anya Niharika Schutz, and I just want to thank you all for listening. Today, we're going to be looking at different ways that movements of change have used the legal system to their advantage and to advance their causes. To help us set the stage, I'm honored to welcome our first guest, Professor Waldo E. Martin. Professor Martin is a renowned history professor at UC Berkeley. He received his bachelor's at Duke and his PhD right here at Cal. He has over 10 publications to his name on topics relating to civil rights, U.S. history from a black perspective, black nationalism, and the intersection between the law and social movements. I am fortunate enough to be taking his class on the history of civil rights and social movements in America, and I just want to say thank you so much for being here with us today, Professor. How are you doing? Well, I'm fine, and I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you very much. So let's just get right to it. Um, after reading your book, Brown v. Board of Education, I personally ascribe to a legal realist interpretation of the law. Um, if the law is a reflection of a history of social interests and manipulations, what are some of the biases in the law that you see today? Um, and what was the significance of legal realism on black activist movement efforts of the 20th century? Let me start by saying that um, I subscribe, like you do, to the notion that law is a reflection of the society in which it is crafted and implemented, and that law cannot be uh, understood or interpreted um, merely by what's on the page or in a statute. And so for me, I came to this topic uh, and this interest because I was uh, vitally uh, concerned with the Brown v. Board of Education decision. I was asked I was, uh, to think about writing a book about it. And after looking at the case law and after thinking about the long legal struggle that eventually led to the Brown decision, Brown 1 and then Brown 2. Brown 2 uh, was the implementation ruling which stated that uh, um, schools had to be quote-unquote desegregated with all deliberate speed and as we know uh, that meant no speed. <laughs> and so um, to me just thinking about different frames for uh, understanding the Brown decision, uh, sort of the larger social movement, black freedom struggle that led to Brown, it was very clear that uh, the, a more legal realist uh, interpretation um, reflected uh, the way in which I uh, saw and understood the law. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I guess the same way that the Brown decision used the 14th Amendment to point out the discrepancies between de facto, actual, and de jure legal expectations of black equality, would you classify the treatment of black people by law enforcement today as a violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment? I do think that structural racism and bias uh, in the implementation uh, and execution of laws um, is clear. What happened with Brown and what happened with the Civil Rights Movement was that a lot of the um, legal constitutional barriers um, to civil rights were removed. 
but um, the implementation of those laws um, has been spotty at best. So I think in addition to the 14th Amendment, there are a whole series of post, I mean, there are civil rights laws and subsequent laws, voting rights laws and fair housing laws, uh, which seek to give teeth to the notion of equality under the law. But um, law operating within a, and a particularly anti-black in a lot of ways means that the actual implementation of the law has often uh, been discriminatory um, and and I, and I don't I think that persists down to today um, having been at this for a long time I think that there are ways in which you have more tools at your disposal to expose these things and to fight these things but I think um, these patterns and these structural problems persist. And I do think that the constitutional and legal remedies are, are vitally important. Um, that's why I think, um, you know, just this whole issue of the current Supreme Court uh, nomination um, is hugely important. Um, because you need uh, a court that looks like and is sensitive to uh, the aspirations and experiences of the entire <laughs> United States. So, 100%. Um, so I, you know, to me, I think the current struggle, you know, um, hopefully can create uh, new tactics, new strategies that can build upon sort of the best ways to proceed in this context, because I do think that the 30, 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s struggle was very different contextually. That it was a different historical moment. So, I think given the, the current moment, um, you know, this group of activists um, can learn from and build upon the past. But this generation of activists must also create its own world. Right. Um, and I think that this sort of goes back to something that you talked about in your Brown v. Board book. Um, you mentioned that like the civil rights struggle, the battle is something that occurs on multiple fronts. Right. It's not just a legal battle. It's not just a social battle. It's something that happens in economics and it sort of dips its toes and just about everything. Um, so you you mentioned how, I guess, post reconstruction the first time around, there was a complete failure, um, economically speaking, for giving black people opportunity. Um, so a lot of the focus of earlier movements was highly economic. Then you see sort of like the civil rights movement of like the 1950s and 60s being a little bit more of a legal struggle. So I guess um, my question for you is, is there one front in particular that you see as being central to today's movement? Like, which um, battlefront should we really truly be focusing our efforts on? Um, to make the most change, if there is one. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I have to uh, isolate one uh, as uh, a key battlefront, it would have to be the economic battlefront because um, I think the material realities that confront poor people, that conf confront dispossessed people, that confront disproportionately the African-American population, um, 
the material disparities um, are, 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 historic, are historical. And I think um, we as a society have to figure out ways to alleviate those disparities. Um, one of the current and persisting uh, arguments is around notions like reparations or uh, how do you, um, you know, make uh, uh, do on promises of the past or atone for past uh, sort of structural uh, mistreatment. You know, I, I mean, we don't have to get into sort of like <laughs> sort of the nuts and bolts of this, but it seems to me that um, if you're going to focus on one thing, to me that would be a, a battlefront that is um, critical. Yeah, because I think all the, uh, the political, the social, the cultural, and the legal, if you have material well-being then that can usually help you to deal with some of the other things a little bit better. You can weather those storms a little bit better. But if you don't have um, material well-being or if you're materially challenged, it makes um, all these other uh, areas of struggle uh, very difficult. Great, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I guess, so you also mentioned how, you know, previous movements of the past were able to be incredibly strategic um, about what sort of legal decisions they were making, about what battlefronts they were choosing to go on. Um, I think sociologists have observed that um, because of the internet and social media, a lot of the ways that we choose to engage in movements today operate very differently. I think there are three key differences that um, sociologists have noted. One of them is like, a lack of centralized leadership in today's movements. The second is that movements today tend to be a lot more vague on their stances. Um, so typically they gather support by marching against something or around a shared feeling rather than for some specific legislation. Um, and then I think the third thing is an increase in performative activism where people can like a post on the internet and share it with their friends and feel like they've done something but then materially not much is accomplished. So I guess based on this, um, what are some of the benefits and drawbacks to having a lack of centralized leadership or figureheads in the Black Lives Matter movement? I, I per, <coughs> excuse me. I personally think um, it's one of the geniuses of the movement. Um, I think one of the problems with uh, the movement in the past was that um, as uh, legendary uh, activists, civil rights activists, uh, Ella Baker spoke about, um, too much of the movement uh, tended to be very leader-centered and the leadership tended to draw so much attention to itself that the grassroots, on-the-ground activism, um, especially uh, publicly, uh, was often obscured. And I think by drawing front and center attention to the issues as opposed to the leadership class, um, to me, is, is a step forward. Uh, the other problem with a leader-centered movement is that if you knock off the leader, then you know, you've know crippled the movement in a lot of ways. And I think um, uh, movement-centered leadership, which is the 
contrast, according to Ella Baker, um, leader, I mean, movement-centered leadership, which is, I think, the model that uh, groups like Black Lives Matter uh, practice um, is a healthier um, uh, practice. Um, and so I think there were some other sort of aspects of this. And yeah. You just... um, so I guess the next thing is that um, because of social media, movements today tend to be somewhat more vague on like their advocacy. Yeah. So, for example, like a term like defund the police um, means different things to different groups of people. And I think this is a result of like social media and how people interpret the term. Um, I think that there are a couple of different versions of what that means. So for some, defund the police means literally just get rid of all funding for police. I think for others, defund the police means take money out of police departments and put it towards other things. For example, disability helplines or um, if someone is dealing with mental illness, then there's a better way than calling a police officer to detain someone. So maybe investing in other social services or things like that. And I think for others, defund the police even means just training police differently than what we are doing currently. So I guess my first question is just like, what are some of the benefits um, or drawbacks to a more vague approach where terms like defund the police mean different things to different people? And then I guess personally, what does defund the police mean to you? Or how do you envision the best solution to police brutality in this country? Okay. Um, I think to me, um, I want to tweak it a little bit because I think one of the, one of the problem that you're pinpointing to me um, is that um, we have different sources of power that shape how we understand and perceive reality. And it strikes me that defund the police in that context operates precisely like you uh, say it does, but I think that's also a conscious strategy of those who oppose police reform to use it to beat back reform. Uh, or if you're more into uh, a more revolutionary position to abolish policing as we know it and uh, create alternative um, ways of uh, quote-unquote um, dealing with crime and the like. So it seems to me that one of the issues is who defines the terms, who controls the uh, debate, um, and a lot of what I read and see would suggest that those who um, oppose any kind of change, social change, especially around policing, you can use something like defund the police to beat back uh, any kind of initiative for change. In terms of just thinking about sort of what I think is important and valuable, I think in, in what I've read and what I've heard and what I've seen and, and witnessed, it seems to me that the system as it currently uh, operates uh, needs a total overhaul. I, I don't think that um, tinkering with this tinkering with that is the way to go. So I personally think that um, a more wholesale uh, remaking of uh, policing in this country is the way to go. Um, I think the best uh, thinking and writing on this 
uh, is probably coming from um, the, 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 the real left, um, where uh, there's a real abolitionist movement uh, to try to you know, get rid of what we have and reimagine and implement um, an alternative system. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's sort of um, I, the best um, material that I've read and thought about comes from that position. But I'm also a realist, and I, I think that what will happen in this country, uh, given the way politics operate, is if we can get a serious debate around more radical kinds of reform. And I think there are bills before um, you know, Congress, many of which have been voted out of the House, but will, uh, given the way the Senate operates, die. Um, I think there's some really um, important ways to hold police uh, accountable uh, and do all kinds of, um, you know, sort of more uh, important kinds of reform. But if you really want to be stimulated and to push the envelope, I think um, thinking about listening to or at least hearing out some of those who argue for abolition and reimagining and remaking totally I think that, that that's where you I think you could at least get some ideas and then think about how that those that set of ideas might be translated into a political reality um, how might those ideas um, be made palatable um, and viable so I think that's the way I, I tend to think about it um, but to suggest that this is going to be easy I, I have no <laughs> doubt that this is a hill that a lot of people will <laughs> stay dead. <laughs> you know, this is not something that's going to gonna be eat very easy. Well, a lot, a lot of police and police power connected to state power is very, very critical in this country. So just trying to criticize it is often um, quite difficult. Interesting. Um, I guess the next piece of just some of the ways that modern movements have changed compared to previous ones is just this increase in like performative activism where someone will post something on the internet and it spreads information, it spreads awareness, but then they feel like that's enough. They feel like what they've done is sufficient. Um, and I think many say that performative activism is a result of people wanting to do something but not quite knowing what's acceptable. Um, and I think there's a major controversy and debate within the Black Lives Matter movement on what the role of non-black actors or allies is. Um, so do you think it's okay for non-black people to be a part of protest movements? And if so, what roles can they play? Um, what are some of the ways that our white, Asian, Hispanic, Native American, Pacific Islander, mixed and other allied listeners can respectfully do to participate in black movements of change? First off, um... I think all of the um, successful movements uh, for change, especially uh, modern black freedom struggles, civil rights, and to some extent black power, um, have been interracial movements. It's without allies, without coalitions, without fellow travelers, without 
comradeship across a variety of identities and borders. It's uh, easier for those who want to contain and um, silo sort of movements like Black Lives Matter. I think, to me, um, I side with those who argue for a big tent, who argue for um, thinking creatively about um, specific things that people within sort of like black communities can do, people within uh, other communities can do to assist the struggle. One of the things that I think is, is, is very, very important is to think about protest action, to think about militant protest action, and to the extent possible, um, especially given the world that we live in today, um, not only uh, supporting that kind of protest action, but if possible, being there, showing up, uh, showing support. Um, if there are ways in which specific actions or specific struggles can be supported um, materially um, and the like, uh, to the extent possible, providing that. The other thing that I think is important to understand is that, um, to me, uh, thinking creatively about social movements for change means understanding that there these movements, especially human rights struggles uh, or uh, larger community struggles, are interlinked. So you cannot f think about freedom for one group without thinking about freedom for all groups. And, you know, the oppression of one segment of, of our society necessarily connects with sort of the privileges in the in, in in the large in 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 the other groups, and so just thinking about how these linkages um, can create sort of spaces for col you know collaborative action, for for um, interracial action. I think that that's the way to go, um, but once again. Uh, to suggest this is easy, <laughs> no, that's, that's not, not happening. The other thing that, um, you know, we're coming up here, um, one of the movements that I think is very instructive is Occupy, because I think the economic critique, the serious economic critique um, that Occupy offered, um, you know, was seen as largely class-based, anti-Wall Street, anti economic uh, in, uh, or pro-economic equality, all of which is important. And then the best of uh, Occupy also connected with on-the-ground uh, economic empowerment um, efforts among, uh, you know, dispossessed communities, you know, poor workers, uh, you know, immigrants, uh, you know, workers that don't, who, who don't have union rights, and so it seems to me that one of the things we need to do more of, and I think the past movements at their best have done, is to think about cross-movement cross collaboration, cross-movement allyship, and how that might, um, you know, tactics and strategies to advance that. Interesting. 
So I know you mentioned earlier um, you think that with the policing system, it's going to need a complete overhaul, and perhaps I'm inclined to agree. But seeing as you also said you're a realist and this is going to be a difficult thing to do, um, one strategy I know that's currently being workshopped right now, um, actually within BPR at UC Berkeley, is the use of the 14th Amendment to make specific police enforcement practices unconstitutional. For example, if you think about something like um, a police shooting, uh, that is something that very clearly violates someone's right to due process of the law, right? Because regardless of whether or not that individual's committed a crime, um, they have been sentenced to death, kind of, without ever going to trial, without ever having presumption of innocence or all these things that they have, that they are entitled to. Um, so. One of the strategies that's been proposed more recently in a workshop at Cal was the potential to get a patchwork of cases going across the United States um, against various police departments, trying to declare like police shootings or the use of like excessive violent force and things like that as unconstitutional or a violation of a person's right to life, liberty or property without due process of the law. Um, but I guess the question is like, is this the type of creative strategy that you think you would see working? Are there things that could be better? Um, are there other similar strategies that you know of um, that could be implemented by modern activists today? Okay, well, I think trying to pursue a class action um, suit or a series of class action suits rooted in real people's struggles, uh, I, I see that as a very, very viable thing. I, but I also want to stress that there are people in in Congress today, especially in the Progressive Caucus, um, who have sponsored a variety of um, progressive um, alternatives that would um, give ordinary citizens greater power when they confront the police as individuals and as groups. Um, and so it seems to me that in addition to sort of pursuing sort of what, what I hear you, you suggesting, sort of a class action series of cases, I think we should also be supportive of those, especially in Congress, uh, who are struggling to try to uh, create uh, support for, uh, you know, alternatives to a lot of the abuses that you just spoke to. Uh, a, a lot of those abuses could be uh, outlawed, and then the issue becomes what kinds of enforcement mechanisms uh, are created to sustain uh, the rights of individual citizens who confront the abuse of police power. So I, I like the idea of class action suits, but I also like the idea of trying to support uh, and uh, push the work of those in Congress who have offered um, what I would argue are progressive ways to try to deal with some of the things that you've spoken about. Most definitely. Um, and I guess the final thing is, do you think there are any shortcomings of modern movements? And what would you hope to see differently from a new generation of activists? That, I mean, that's such a hard question uh, <laughs> because um, I think what I tend to tend to focus on are ways that movements, uh, especially 
uh, movements that are currently uh, working hard can be improved. So there are any number of things that, uh, and, 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 and what you know is that the people in the movements are often extremely self-critical. So it's not like, you know, they're involved in an organization, they're involved in a struggle, and they don't see uh, the same problems that um, people who are not as, you know, connected to the movement can see. It seems to me that what a spirit of critical analysis, uh, criticism, self-criticism within these movements, and constantly um, probing, trying to figure out ways to internally uh, improve democracy, improve decision making, um, you know, and, and fine tune tactics and strategies. But it seems to me that that's that that comes out of the struggle, that comes out of the activists on the ground. I mean, it's a serious kind of practice, um, and it seems to me that what I, as an old guy, what I don't like is old people trying to tell young people what to do. Um, I, I think, you know, you can offer advice, you can say, you know, based on, you know, what I experienced, this, 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 this has worked, this has not worked. But um, I firmly believe that um, each generation must, um, you know, learn as much as it can about not only the current world, but how the world came to be. And that would be history, politics, economics, society, and culture. Learn as much as you can and build upon that knowledge to think about the moment that we are a part of and how do you uh, change that moment? How do you, um, uh, what will work in this moment? Um, and so I think it's important to have allies across generations who can engage in fruitful conversation, but I also think it's important to, for, for youth and students to create their own organizations and to lead their own struggles and to work with other sorts of organizations and, and institutions, um, because I think that's also part of being a citizen. You know, wherever you are working to make things better, if you're a student at Cal, and you're concerned about these things, you can come together, you can sort of like figure out what can we do in the place where we are, how can we not only change the world at Cal, but our immediate world um, in Berkeley, and, and, and what might we do? Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate it again. Thank you again for coming to the podcast. Um, and just thank you so much. I feel like we've learned a lot from you, and the previous generations of activists, and I hope that going forwards, we make more progress, <laughs> slowly but surely. Thank you, it's been a pleasure.